This would work. Good weekend? I know it's already Tuesday, so what am I talking about, right? But you got to read all this great poetry. You laugh. Hey, everybody laughs. How are we? Is it particularly bad? Is it the weather? Is it? No. The semester coming up on projects. Coming up on projects. Yeah. What have you been doing before now? What if not projects? <laughs> okay. Um, what did you think? This was a different <coughs> kettle of fish. The kettle of fish that we are boiling our fish in. The kettle in which we are boiling our fish um, is becoming different. <laughs> we are boiling different fish in our kettle. Well, is the kettle different or is the fish? Well, that would be the question, right? I guess really that's what this entire course is about. Is it the kettle? Is it the fish? <laughs> One way or another, that's what it's about. Um, as as uh, Oliver Goldsmith says in his Ode on the Death of a Favorite Cat, Basically, all you need to know about this poem is what female heart can gold despise, what cats averse to fish. So the way his favorite cat died was it went for the goldfish in the goldfish bowl. Um, and it was both the gold, and the gold and the fish that caused the cat's death. All right, you cats. Um, what did you think of Thompson? What did you think of Collins? Yeah. Yeah. I thought Collins was really difficult to read, okay. especially the poetical, um, what was that called? The Ode on the Poetical Character. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I like Thompson. I thought it was interesting. He has a very specific style. I found it kind of amusing. I mean, his poems were not, I don't think they were meant to be amusing, but... No, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but they have, they have since afforded many hours of innocent mirth to readers down um, the centuries. He had like passionate outbreaks in the middle of the poems, which I thought was very unique to him. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Um, what's the first thing that's different about Thompson from, and Collins too, but Thompson from everyone else we've read? He totally doesn't rhyme. Um, he's, what he's doing is returning to a kind of Miltonic blank verse. Um, his mind is full of Milton, and what he's trying to do is um, a kind of Miltonic description of the seasons. He does rhyme in some of the poems we looked at. Um, what's the poem that you had no idea that he wrote, which you said, oh, now I know? Rule yes, Rule of Britannia. Could you read it without the music as you read it? Yeah, that's too bad. Um, or maybe it isn't. Who knows? But yes, um, and now you know all the words of Rule Britannia. So that's probably his most um, famous poem. Um, not meant to be his most famous poem, but his most famous poem. Um, that one rhymes. A couple of the other ones that we read rhyme. But, um, and The Castle of Indolence, of which you only read a little piece, um, is in Spencerian stanzas. Do people know what a Spencerian stanza is? We talked about it a little bit when we were talking about Alexandrines. Tell? I think it's No. Well, there is a way that you what you're saying could be true, but I doubt it's the way you mean it. 
Um, but maybe it is. Uh, Spencerian stanza was invented by Edmund Spencer, who you'll recall Milton told Dryden was one of his chief influences. And um, it was invented uh, essentially in 1590. Um, it's an English elaboration of an older Italian and French stanza. And the way it works, um, just so you know, especially if any of you are planning to take Milton and Spencer, which how can you forego? Um, the way it works is it's a nine-line stanza that rhymes A, B, B, A, A, no, now I'm going to screw it up. Um, a, B, no, it's A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C. Um, so it's so you have four lines that look like a quatrain, A, B, A, B, and then the B rhyme is repeated in the fifth line. So you get a kind of couplet thing going on right in the middle of the stanza between lines four and five, A, B, A, B, B. But that second B becomes um, the first line of another quatrain, which is B, C, B, C, and then you get a C. So the first five lines of Spencerian stanza are A, B, A, B, B. And then the second five lines with the middle line is the overlap. It's nine lines long. So lines one through five are A, B, A, B, B. Lines five through nine are B, C, B, C, C. So there's a kind of, um, it's, it's like imbrication or brickwork. There's, there's um, an overlap in the middle line. Um, the B is uh, repeated at, as, as though it's the fifth line of the first half of the stanza, and then it's the first line of the second half of the stanza, and it ends with a CC rhyme. But the second half, the C is in Alexandrine, so that you have eight pentameter lines, A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, and then the last C is in Alexandrine. It's 12 syllables instead of 10, and that gives it a kind of finality. Spencer invented that stanza. Um, other people tried to write in it, and then it kind of fell out of favor as sort of elaborate, ornate, old-fashioned, um, and uh, really only well done by Spencer. And then um, Thompson resuscitated it for the Castle of Indolence. Uh, the part of the Castle of Indolence you read, the Castle of Indolence is a longish poem in two cantos. Um, the part that you read is essentially um, an evocation of the beauties of indolence, how nice it is um, to just feel um, this, this endless indolence without having to do anything. Um, unfortunately, the poem is a kind of adventure story in which the knight of industry defeats the evil magician of indolence, and therefore England becomes um, a leading commercial power. Um, and so the second part of the Castle of Indolence is uh, generally not the part that people um, ever excerpt for anthologies um, because it's, it's the um, jingoistic um, and, in a sense, moralistic part. Um, but the first half, which, is, which sounds a lot like Spencer, um, is a kind of shows all the attractiveness of indolence. And that's really powerfully and beautifully done. Um, some later poets, perversely, but um, in some deep sense rightly, decided that the second canto of The Castle of Indolence was just there as plausible deniability. That is that what Thompson really liked was indolence, but then it wouldn't do to publish a poem in praise of indolence. 
Um, so he published a second half, which is, hooray, indolence is defeated, now we can be happy, but he didn't mean it. Um, the, um, it was strongly um, that poem, The Castle of Indolence, um, which I hope you liked. I mean, we're not going to look at it in any detail, um, except insofar, I mean, one re the reason I bring it up is, first of all, because it brings back Spencer, who is now coming back, um, well, he never was in the course before, who's now coming back into English literary history, um, who is beginning to affect English literary history, kind of starting through Thompson, starting through Thompson's um, writing this old-fashioned form, um, almost this indolent form, which is what it feels like. Um, parenthetically, what he's thinking of most in The Fairy Queen is a section of The Fairy Queen, um, which is Spencer's great long poem in this stanza, in which despair tries to get the hero of the first book of The Fairy Queen to, to kill himself. And what he does is he produces arguments about um, how restful death will be. Um, uh, rest after toil, port after stormy seas, death after life doth greatly please. So the idea is that death will be um, easy, indolent way of resting after the difficulties of life. And it's despair who tempts the knight in book one with that idea. Um, and it's an idea of um, where the poetic power of Spencer and then later of Thompson um, goes to producing these very rich, hypnotic, evocative, um, poetic feeling for what it would be like simply to let the poetry take you to go with the poetic flow. Um, and that going with the poetic flow, it's, it's a kind of really lovely demonstration of how poems can do that. Tennyson will do something similar um, later in his great poem, The Lotus Eaters, um, which is also written in Spenserian stanzas. Um, the introduction to The Lotus Eaters is written in Spenserian stanzas. Um, so there's something about that, that, that hypnotic repetition of rhyme in Spenserian stanzas um, that Thompson was the first to bring back to people's attention in the castle of indolence. Um, later, it became important to Keats and to Shelley. And the reason I, um, Shelley wrote after Spencer, the longest poem in English in Spencerian stanzas is by Shelley. Um, it's a poem you should only read once, but you should read it, um, a poem called The Revolt of Islam. Um, and it's several hundred pages long. Um, in Spencerian stanzas. One of Shelley's greatest poems, The Revolt of Islam, is not. Um, but one of his greatest poems is his elegy on the death of Keats, called Adonais, um, which is written in Spencerian stanzas as well. Um, and Keats wrote some of his um, longer poems in Spencerian stanzas. So Thompson is kind of one way that Thompson is beginning to prepare for the romantics, not that he knows he's doing that, but one of the things, maybe we should put, we should put it this way, one of the things that Thompson does um, which is, begins to make romanticism possible, um, one of the things is to bring back Spencer. Um, in the seasons, what he's doing is bringing back Milton. So I know that Milton and Spencer are pre this course, um, but it's impossible to do the reading that we're doing without learning something about them, even if it's only um, through my telling you things. Um, but Milton, remember, um, as I just reminded you, 
um, talked about how much he learned from um, told Dryden how much he learned from Spencer. Milton also, in his great um, uh, screed on freedom of the press, Areopagitica, which is where the First Amendment ultimately derives from, um, his argument against um, prior censorship of any writing, um, talks in that political pamphlet he mentions the person he calls our sage and serious poet Spencer, whom I dare be thought, he said, to consider a better teacher than Duns Scotus or Thomas Aquinas. So Milton regards Spencer as um, an extraordinarily important philosophical thinker, um, although what he's writing is poetry. Milton, nevertheless, in Paradise Lost, um, the head note to Paradise Lost, he has a little note on the verse of Paradise Lost. And what he says in the note on the verse is that this poem is written in unrhymed heroic measure. That's the name that he gives it. Um, it's in unrhymed poetry. It's blank verse. Um, it's not the first blank verse written in English in a non-dramatic context. Shakespeare wrote a lot of um, dramatic blank verse, and so did Marlowe, and so did some other people. But no poem of any note had been written in blank verse before Paradise Lost. Um, there were some translations written in blank verse and some experiments in blank verse before Paradise Lost, but Milton is really the first person to write in blank verse. Um, then along comes Dryden, who um, knew Milton um, and who had the either happy or unhappy idea of turning Paradise Lost into an opera. Um, and Dryden, of course, insists on rhyming. For him, um, rhyme is the very center and heart of poetry. For Milton, rhyme is a barbarous practice, he says. Um, even though some poets have done well with it, and by this he means Spencer, um, they nevertheless are um, simply producing jingles, which is what you do when you rhyme. Um, and really great poetry not only um, doesn't, um, doesn't need to rhyme, but it needs not to rhyme, um, because rhyming is distracting, says Milton. Um, so Dryden, the next great poet, um, comes along and he immediately restores, he's a restoration poet after all, he immediately restores rhyme. Not all the time, for example, All for Love, his version of Antony Cleopatra, is not rhymed. And we read some of Dryden's unrhymed poetry as in the prologue. Um, but generally, Dryden brings rhyme back and brings it back with, with um, and brings the heroic couplet back. Um, and he's quite a genius at it. We've been looking at the genius of rhyme ever since Dryden. Um, that's what we've been looking at in this course. Absolutely brilliant, brilliant rhyming. Um, now, however, we're going towards a later kind of poetry signaled, um, you could say, by the return to Spencer, which is really a return to Milton. Um, so Thompson returns to Spencer in the Castle of Indolence. It's a return to Milton because Milton was, the, was Spencer's great champion. And so there's a, there's a line in English poetry which is defined as going from Spencer to Milton to the Romantics. And that line is first drawn by people like Thompson and Collins, um, people who are seeing 
um, another possibility in English poetry besides the kind of um, explicit, topical, um, highly, highly um, uh, local referential poetry that we've been reading. Um, and so if you declare, there's a sense in which modern English literary history is being invented by Dr. Johnson, but by also the poets, some of whom he didn't like in the mid-18th century. Um, and Thompson and Collins are extremely important to that. So Thompson, in writing The Seasons, is, doing, is writing in Milton's mode in Paradise Lost. It's blank verse description. Um, it's description that had, was fabulously successful at the time. People thought Thompson was amazingly great, um, all but Dr. Johnson, who did not like him. Um, and um, then also he's bringing Spencer back into public awareness. And by public, the first and most important public for literary history is the public constituted by people who are going to be poets. That is, um, what kind of poetry you end up writing is, in various ways, highly influenced by the poetry that you read and love. Um, when you become a poet, um, you become a poet partly because you've fallen in love with poetry, but if you fall in love with poetry, it's always um, certain poems that you've fallen in love with. Poetry isn't an abstraction, but it's your own reading. You've fallen in love with certain poems, certain poets, and you either try to write like them or not to write like them, or to find ways um, to write like them, which is not the ways that they wrote. Um, so what Thompson does is he brings back a kind of Miltonic description, and he also brings back um, a kind of Spencerian idea of what poetry can do. The one thing that you don't really get in the heroic couplet um, is a sense that you can give yourself to stanza-length um, uh, expositions of thought or stanza-length expositions of mood. Um, the closest that we've seen in the heroic couplet that, to do that is something like Eloisa to Abelard, um, where you get long verse paragraphs. They are in couplets, um, but the paragraphs do seem to have um, 10 or 12 or 14 line um, through lines that um, make you feel that you're taking in the whole paragraph at once rather than taking things in couplet by couplet which is how we've been trained to read now um, all semester and how 18th century readers have been trained to read for four or five decades. Um, but now we're getting a different sort of writing, um, a return to a kind of Miltonic writing when we get to Thompson and to Collins. Um, Thompson, we're going to do a little experiment here. This experiment was done on me, and it worked. So um, I'm not giving you a page to look at. I just want to read... Um, a little bit of um, of winter to you. Winter is the first part of the seasons that he wrote. Um, he published winter, and people liked it. Um, it wasn't. He didn't say winter part one of the seasons. It was just a poem called winter, um, and then people liked it. So he ended up doing the other three seasons as well, and revised it till he died. Um, so I'm just going to read aloud. Um, behold, the well-poised hornet hovering hangs, 
flies off in airy circles, then returns. Nor shall the man that musing walks alone go unchastised away. Sometimes a fleece, soft shadow, or the unruffled face of heaven with tempered influence down then is the time to steal themselves from the degenerate crowd, to tread low-thought advice beneath their feet, and woo lone quiet in her silent walks. Um, that line, and woo lone quiet in her silent walks, is um, maybe the most famous line in winter. Um, so why you found it? Why are you frowning? Yeah, so Johnson and Boswell were talking one day, and Boswell, um, being partly because he was Scottish, um, professed himself a great admirer of Thompson, who was Scottish, and um, Johnson said, it's all meandering description. Remember that line in Pope about description without sense in the, essay, um, in the letter to Dr. Arbuthnot? That's essentially what Johnson thought of Thompson. He said, there's nothing here but endless, pointless description. And, sir, th this is nothing, said Johnson. And Boswell said, um, sir, this poetry is really quite wonderful. So Johnson picked up a copy of Thompson and read aloud to him. And then he said to Boswell, sir, is not this the sublime poetry you meant? And Boswell said, sir, it is. And Johnson replied, sir, I have omitted every other line. Um, so that's what I just did. Um, which you cottoned on to. Um, yeah, you can, you can pretty much, not entirely, but you can pretty much skip every other line in Thompson and you don't notice it. Um, and that's a pretty good sign that there's a lot of filler. Um, now, that's probably being a little unfair to Thompson. He's trying something genuinely new. And um, in a way, what you can do is see him as a radical experiment, experimentalist. Um, the analogy would be to something like the way abstract art, um, this is only an analogy, but the way abstract art developed in the 20th century, which is basically um, it began as a focus on elements of representational scenes, um, but only a focus on little bits of those elements so that if you have like a parade with a lot of flags, the most interesting thing for a painter to paint are the flags um, because they're in the wind, they're, you have fabric which is curving and, and, um, um, and, and billowing in the wind. That's hard and interesting to paint. Um, so, there, so that abstract art starts developing or one of the tributary streams of abstract art is simply painting that. Forget the rest of the parade. Just paint the distorted flag, the flag under distortion, or the umbrellas. Um, instead of the crowds holding the umbrellas, just the umbrellas, um, just the flags, just the um, distortion in windows, and so on. Um, so, so a lot of what can sometimes happen is that what's technically interesting um, can be focused on to the exclusion of everything else. What Thompson is doing is doing the kind of descriptions that Milton does in Paradise Lost, but nothing else, only the descriptions that Milton does in Paradise Lost. That somehow really grabs him. Um, and so what he does is he says, okay, I love those descriptions of Eden, for example. Um, the part about Satan and Adam and Eve and the angels and all of that um, that I don't really need. 
what I really, really love are, are Milton's descriptions of nature. And so what he does in the seasons is to take those and to make that's all he's focusing on are descriptions of nature with just an occasional um, allusion to some kind of moral lesson we can learn by looking at nature. Um, namely that nature is self-sufficient and that we can be sufficient within nature. So what you're getting is a kind of thing that in Milton is subordinated. It's, it's fantastic and beautiful in Milton, and it's also framed by the scaffolding of a plot. Um, in Thompson, you don't get the plot. In Thompson, all you get is pure description. And um, for modern tastes, it just doesn't work. Um, but it partly doesn't work. I mean, are, are you looking dubious because you like it, Tina? No, I agree with you. Okay, yeah. Um, part of the reason it doesn't work um, is, I think, an intrinsic one, which is we want to, we, we always want some direction in any reading that we do. We, um, what Thompson does is he just kind of wanders wherever. And part of his point um, as you can see in the poem on Newton, um, the Elegy to Newton, um, is to try to do in poetry what he thought Newton did in physics, which is to be able to look at anything in the universe and have that, um, have that be an example of the way the entire universe works. Um, so I think the Elegy on Newton is actually really good, um, and it may give you a sense of the excitement of Newton's discoveries to um, to his contemporaries, to people who um, grew up right in the shadow of the Newtonian revolution. The idea that Newton could have figured out the orbit of a comet by looking at how an apple falls to the ground. Um, that comets, okay, planets, yeah, they're kind of circular or elliptical, but comets, but Newton could figure out how comets ordered orbited the sun. Um, but what Newton does in science and what Thompson feels some, some envy for is um, to be able to just spread his thinking like a veil over the whole universe, over all natural phenomena. And there's a way that Thompson is trying to do that with his poetry, that by this endless description, endless evocative description of nature and of all the seasons of nature, um, what he's trying to do is kind of adsorb himself into natural phenomena, into that um, um, whole world of nature. So, but it's probably a fact of human psychology that um, we don't like reading without there being some kind of plot. Um, the plot doesn't have to be a major plot, but there should be a plot. Um, we should be surprised by things that happen. Um, those things can be as simple as rhymes. That is, the plot can be the plot in which we're expecting one rhyme and get another, or in which we're expecting a rhyme, but we get there by a way we're not expecting. I'm not saying that the plot has to be you know, some complicated uh, mystery story, um, but there has to be something unexpected that happens to keep us interested. Yeah? So, so Thompson was so popular Yeah, so I don't have 
a good answer for it. I mean, the, the answer is always that the tastes change over time, but I think that part of um, the history of taste is is seeing novelty and seeing that what Thompson is doing is... Uh, uh, well, the answer is going to be what, I, what I'm going to call the extrinsic reason that we no longer like Thompson, um, which is that let's say um, that nevertheless what he did was by itself a plot. That is, that he did something really daring and different in committing himself to description so wholeheartedly, um, in abstracting from um, everything that he loved in poetry to turn it into pure description. You know, and we, you can find examples of this. I think, again, analogies with 20th century music are very helpful here so that you get kind of Debussy tone poems. Imagine Thompson as a kind of 18th century Debussy doing La Mer or something like that. Um, that is that you have this, this um, daring idea of taking one thing that for Milton is part of many things that he does, for other poets are part of many things that they do, um, taking that one thing and radically expanding it. Um, and this really blew people away. Um, then we could say um, that, sure, like all other radical experimentations, there's a shelf life to them when they're new um, and when they're not the kind of thing that you've read a lot of. Um, they stand alone and they continue to have the power of novelty and surprise. But they become victims of their own success. Um, when and 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 this is why artistic um, modes change. This is why tone poems. No one will pay any attention to a tone poem now. This is why minimalist music is no longer of the kind of interest it was. Um, but the the answer to that would be that Thompson makes Wordsworth possible. But what Wordsworth does is to do, and I was thinking of bringing in Tinter and Abbey today, um, but we'll probably do Tinter and Abbey the last official day of class, um, or at least I'll bring it in. But what Wordsworth does is he takes Thompsonian description and he makes it a major, major focus of the kind of poetry he writes, but he's also interested in something that Thompson only hints at, which is what it says about the psychology of the perceiver to see these things. Um, so Thompson gives you um, an account of nature and a little bit, as, as a couple of you were already saying, he will talk about himself seeing these things or feeling these things, but he only flits in um, very briefly into the poem and then goes back to, into this, as I say, adsorption. Um, into the nature outside of him. Wordsworth is going to talk about what it means to want to look at nature this way and what it means to feel that you can describe nature this way and then what it means to feel that, wait a second, I can no longer see nature the way I saw it. So to take an example from Wordsworth, um, in the Prelude, which is his great, long, epic-length poem. He didn't mean for it to be um, his great, long poem. Um, he meant for it to be an introduction to his great, long poem. Um, but it's much better than the poem he introduces with it. 
Um, but in the prelude, um, the prelude is, uh, he always called it the growth of the poem on the growth of my own mind. And the prelude begins with a kind of Thompsonian description, although much more first person, much more overtly first person than anything in Thompson. Um, it begins, oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze. And then he describes um, this vernal touch of spring and how beautiful the spring is. And he goes on that way for about um, 150 lines, um, lines that are Thompsonians in some ways, although there's a lot more first person than Thompson. And then at the end of those lines, he says, this is as far as I got when I found that I couldn't go any further. Um, I wasn't feeling it. I, was, I wanted to be writing a poem about the beauty of nature, but I wasn't feeling it. And I don't know why. Um, I tried again. I said it's an insult to this beautiful world to think of anything but present joy. So I tried again. But the harp was soon defrauded, and the banded host of harmony soon blown away, I'm not getting this right, into ra ragged sounds and lastly utter silence. And so then that's the beginning of the prelude because he then says, what happened to me that I could no longer write this beautiful descriptive poetry? There I was, um, a young man and already unable to feel the beauty that allows you to write Thompsonian nature description. So Wordsworth starts writing, and Wordsworth's great poems are all poems about not being able to write like Thompson, you could say. This is a weird way to summarize Wordsworth, but it's not a false one. All his great poems are about looking at nature and feeling that he should feel about it the way Thompson does, and not feeling about it the way Thompson does. And his poems work to recover that feeling and work to analyze the difficulty or the impossibility of recovering that feeling. So Tintern Abbey, how many people have read Tintern Abbey? Um, okay, that's you know one of Wordsworth's five or six greatest poems. Um, so Tintern Abbey begins with... Um, it's being five years since he saw this beautiful scene on the on the Y River, um, and now he's seeing it again um, after five years. And the picture of the mind revives again. But the whole point about Tintern Abbey is he's now looking at a place that he is no longer seeing as he saw it five years earlier. So Thompson is saying, if you look at nature clearly, this is what you'll see. Forget everything else. Just look at nature, and it's wonderful. Wordsworth says, I do look at nature, and I look with all my heart, and it looks different. And what that makes me realize is that it's not nature, but it's the person looking at nature and what happens to them that determines what nature looks like. So Wordsworth, as a describer of nature, is much greater than Thompson. Wordsworth's natural descriptions are fantastic. Um, if you guys have read any George Eliot, George Eliot does, in pro does a lot of prose descriptions 
that are her channeling of Wordsworthian natural description. So to get a sense, if you like George Eliot's descriptions of nature, and some people don't, um, but if you do like George Eliot's descriptions of nature, um, she's explicitly um, and avowedly channeling Wordsworth. Um, but Wordsworth's descriptions of nature, like Eliot's, are really, really beautiful. But even in the midst of his most beautiful descriptions, he'll say, um, and yet I know where'er I go that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. Something is missing. There's something I don't see. Um, Wordsworth in um, Tintern Abbey talks about our relation to nature as one in which we half create what we perceive. That's the crucial thing, is that we half create it. It's not just out there if only we would, we would um, allow ourselves to see it. Um, the mind really matters. It's the mind that's, that's seeing. So again, Wordsworth and Blake, who's going, who um, also wrote some amazing poems about the seasons that we'll probably look at, um, Wordsworth and Blake, Blake especially, would never write poems praising Newton the way Thompson does. And the reason they wouldn't, Wordsworth is a little bit more ambivalent about Newton, partly because um, he was in the same university as Newton, and he, he got to go and hang out in Newton's rooms when he was an undergraduate, so he thought that was cool. Um, but Wordsworth and Blake, um, what they didn't like about Newton was um, that Newton was about the external universe, which for Blake was death. What Newton figured out was the machinery of the universe, machinery which had nothing to do with the soul or the mind or with perception. Thompson liked Newton because for Thompson, the idea was the universe is amazing, and all you have to do is look and you'll be amazed. For Wordsworth and for Blake, it's not what you saw that was amazing. It was the fact of seeing that's amazing, that you could open your eyes and see. So, so the difference, you could say, between Thompson and the Romantics, and he gets us halfway there with his love of nature and his love of natural description. He gets us halfway there. But the difference between um, Thompson and the Romantics, you could say, is that Thompson really is looking at nature and describing it as well as he can and trying to um, simply um, uh, um, defer to the wonders of the natural world. Um, and Wordsworth is psychologically aware, and Blake is psychologically aware, that you can't defer to the wonders of the natural world. That the, that the natural world has its wonders for the human mind. And it's the human mind. It's partly because they were such good psychologists of themselves, because they introspected so well, because they thought so well about um, human perception, that for them it was the human mind um, that, and its response to nature and sometimes the failure of that response um, that started mattering. Um, as I say, this leads in both of them um, to descriptions of nature which are far better, far greater, far deeper than anything Thompson did. 
But on the other hand, Thompson, no one had done better than Thompson at that length before him. So, so the external reason that Thompson no longer matters so much to us, although he did matter um, to the 18th century, is that everything good that he did, Wordsworth and Coleridge and George Eliot and Tennyson did better. Um, and um, a really interesting example, I mean, I was thinking of this, and you know, if this were the full year version of this course, which will probably never exist, um, but if it were, we would be reading Charlotte Smith. Um, she's a, her um, poem, Beachy Head, which is an early 19th century po um, poem, if it hadn't been, we would definitely do it, um, is an amazing geological poem about the cliffs of Dover. And it's also intensely descriptive um, and intensely powerful in its descriptiveness. Um, and it's much more, I guess I'm not comfortable saying that it's greater than um, Thompson because that would just be to diss too much um, all the 18th century people who, who thought he was, he was fantastic, but I think it's much more to our taste. Um, and it's a really great poem. So if you want to read natural description without a philosoph well, no, she's pretty philosophical, but without the philosophical baggage that maybe Wordsworth and Blake have. Um, Beachy Head, uh, which she wrote a year or two before she died, um, is a really, really great um, version of, of poems of pure natural description. Um, Beachy Head probably, uh, if Wordsworth might remind you of George Eliot or vice versa, um, Beachy Head might remind you of Thoreau. Um, that is uh, a reason, um, a really intense and careful reason to note nature both beautifully and accurately, um, which is what you get in Thoreau as well. Um, so, you know, if you love Thompson, that's great. Um, I guess if I had a choice, I would listen to Vivaldi rather than read Thompson. Um, but he's important for... Um, just understanding what's going on um, at the time, and there there are you know there are some um, there are moments that that are really quite wonderful. Um, what let's go, however, to Collins, um, who is you guys have already said um, more difficult than Thompson. Um, he has an elegy on Thompson. Uh, if you have the Oxford, this is page 383. Um, the ode occasioned by the death of Mr. Thompson, um, where the last stanza on that page, he says, and see the fairy valleys fade, dun night has veiled the solemn view, yet once again Dear parted shade, meek nature's child, again adieu. The genial meads assigned to bless thy life shall mourn thy early doom. Their hinds and shepherd girls shall dress with simple hands thy rural tomb. Long, long thy stone and pointed clay shall melt the musing Britain's eyes. O oh, vales and wild woods, shall he say. In yonder grave, your druid lies. Um, so Thompson is seen by Collins as meek nature's child. 
Um, and that's a good phrase, the idea of the poet as a child of nature. Again, that's proto-romantic, um, that, that um, being a child and being open to what nature um, has to give you, um, that's the way to be. And people will mourn him and mourn this child of nature, who in some sense represents nature itself as the druid, as a spirit of nature. Um, but the reason I, I bring this up is because Collins, who is um, much harder and probably less you, well, he was certainly less, less loved um, in his own day, um, is in a lot of ways a much more interesting poet. Um, really important to the Romantics. Um, and really, in a way, you could argue the first Romantic poet, although he's way before them. Um, he dies two years after Blake is born, and Blake is born 13 years before Wordsworth is born. Um, but Collins's poems, as you'll see in all of these, every single one of his poems is in some way or another about poetry. Thompson's aren't, but Collins's are. So if you look at, we won't, we won't have time to look at it in any length now, but if you look at the ode on the popular superstitions, well, just look at the title, an ode on the popular superstitions of the highlands of Scotland considered as the subject of poetry. So what he does there in that, um, it's, it's uh, the po we, we only have a draft of the poem. Um, he wrote the poem, but it was lost. Um, but someone found an early draft of it. Um, and what that poem is about are the possibilities that the Highland superstitions give for the writing of poetry, the possibilities of subjects. So he doesn't write about these scary things. He doesn't write about ghosts and elves and brownies and things like that. What he writes about is what how wonderful it would be to write about those things, and also how wonderful the ballads, the border ballads, the Scottish ballads are that tell stories about those things. So again, to, to anticipate a little bit about Romanticism, one of the major things that, um, well, well, we'll talk about this when we read the preface to Lyrical Ballads, but Wordsworth and Coleridge in 1798, Wordsworth and Coleridge were very close friends. Um, eventually not so much, but um, they started out as very close friends. Um, and in 1798, they decided to publish a book, which they gave the, it's probably the most revolutionary book of poetry um, in English. And they gave it the title Lyrical Ballads. And that title, Lyrical Ballads, is an oxymoronic one um, and meant to be. It's, it's a very, very provocative title um, because the idea is that what a ballad is is something that's collected. It's oral poetry that only recently um, had people started collecting by going to the rural regions of England and Wales and Scotland. Um, and there's a famous book called Bishop Percy's Relics of Ancient Poetry. Percy's Relics of Ancient Poetry. And what he did was he, his, he um, listened to people. He asked them to tell them ballads that they knew. 
Um, some of those ballads are very famous, and they're still sung in Appalachia in, as folk songs. And he wrote them down. And um, a lot of people at the end of the 18th century read these ballads and thought they were really amazing as poetry. And part of what was amazing about them is that they told these stories very simply, but um, they were spooky, simple, scary, and powerful. Um, and so what Wordsworth and Coleridge had the idea of doing was combining lyric poetry. That is, you could say more or less poetry which is spoken by an identifiable speaker in an identifiable situation describing himself or herself. Taking that kind of poetry, which tends to be highly literate, and combining it with the kind of poetry that you get in ballads. Um, so that the idea, as Wordsworth famously said, was that this was going to be poetry written in the natural language of natural men, and what such poetry is written in the natural language of natural men, would, Wordsworth thought, naturally kind of take on the quality of a ballad because it wasn't going to be the kind of poetry that someone like Pope saying, look at me, I'm Pope, or Swift saying, look at me, I'm Dr. Swift, would write, but it would be what someone who is going through what everyone goes through in life, love and loss and despair and hope, um, what they might say in a poem, and what they might say would be something that would be in the kind of poetry that was developed um, spontaneously by the um, rural, rural generations for hundreds of years, that is in ballad form. Um, so lyrical ballads are saying, here are poems more or less in ballad form. Um, some of them are in very strict, there is no strict ballad form, but if there were, this would be strict ballad form. Um, but written explicitly about um, human experience. And what they agreed was that Coleridge would write the supernatural ones, would tell supernatural stories. Um, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner being the most famous of those. And that Wordsworth would avoid the supernatural, but only describe what happens in everyday life. But what he understood happens in everyday life is that people have supernatural superstitions. Um, they worry about things that are not true, but they still worry about them. They are superstitious. So these are natural poems about superstition. And the idea of describing human beings who are afraid of the dark or afraid of ghosts or um, puzzled by things that have explanations, and one of them there's um, a knocking that's occurring underground, and they think that, and and people think the dead are coming back. Um, that's something like an expansion of the idea of an ode on the popular superstitions of Scotland or of the Lake District or whatever, considered as the subject of poetry. So that idea about thinking about the ideas that lead to the ballads, not writing superstitious ballads, not writing ballads about the supernatural, but thinking about the experience you would have of the world to make those ballads seem reasonable to you. That's what Wordsworth got from Collins. So if you look, for example, um, 
at, um, well, let's look at the Ode to Fear. Um, and that's, uh, really any of these poems um, provide good examples. But so the Ode to Fear is, is um, amazingly in the form of a Greek ode. Um, and it begins, thou, the thou there being fear, thou to whom the world unknown with all its shadowy shapes is shown, who ceased appalled the unreal scene while fancy lifts the veil between. Ah, fear, ah, frantic fear, I see, I see thee near. So the first thing to notice is that this is, like a lot of columns, a little bit difficult. Collins eventually went mad. Um, and um, we're actually also in the part of the course where we read a lot of mad poets. Um, somehow in the mid-18th century, a lot of really important poets went mad, um, Collins being one of them. But notice this is a little bit difficult. Um, fear, what is it? If you're writing a poem to fear, um, what's the first decision you have to make about how to characterize fear? Is this really a weird question? Yeah. Is it within you or is it an external source? Okay, so yeah. Why would that be a particularly important thing to say about, to decide about fear? In other words, if you were writing an ode to diligence, would that be an important question? Well, maybe it would be for diligence. Let's say you were writing an ode, I don't know, what's some, some moral abstraction? Um, an ode to um, early rising. Oh, early rising, you come to me and make my alarm to ring. I don't know. But let's say you wrote an ode to <laughs> early rising. Would it be an important question whether it was inside you or outside you? Yeah, I know that's a weird question. But, it's a right, but you have the right answer. No, not really. Why is it important when it comes to fear? whether it's inside you or outside you. Why do you have to make that decision at the start? What's the difference? Y yeah? Because if it's within you, then it's your own fear. But if it's external, then it could be just fear in general. Yeah. It's, if fear... Okay, so remember I, I brought up Spencer on despair. Um, that is, despair tempts the knight of the fairy queen to kill himself. And the question is, well, if despair comes from outside and says you should really kill yourself, um, death after life um, doth greatly please. Um, if despair says that to you, um, then you can feel, okay, so despair is an evil being who will sometimes catch hold of a human being and make them feel in a way that isn't natural to them. Whereas if despair is within you, it might mean that your soul has already um, uh, changed enough that it's going to be much harder for you to get out of despair. If despair is within you, you know, you can Im imagine this as an argument. Um, someone says, oh, all night long I wrestled with despair. 
And I don't know whether that was a projection of my unconscious or whether some evil supernatural being came and wrestled with me. Um, it's going to make a difference because if you say to that person, um, oh, it was actually within you, the person will say, well, then I give up. There's nothing I can do. And you will despair over the fact that despair is within you. Whereas if despair comes from outside of you, then you can say, oh, that's not me. That's some evil being, and there are evil beings in the world, and the good thing to do is lock the doors and, and call the knights errant, and they'll get rid of those evil beings. If despair is outside of you, you don't have to worry about it as much as if, as if it's within you. Because if it's within you, the very fact that it's within you is a reason to despair. If despair is a part of you, then it's not going to be easily overcome. Whereas if it's outside of you, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's not you. At least you know that it's not intrinsic to your nature. So with fear, you might have the opposite idea. If fear is within you, which would you rather know? That fear is a monster stalking you or that fear is a feeling within you? Which would it be more helpful if you were fe feeling fearful to be told? Yeah, because if it's within you, then you can just say, well, um, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just some feeling within me. Um, I needn't worry about it. For a lot of people, learning the concept of free-floating anxiety, um, which is a standard psychological concept, is just incredibly liberating. That is, you feel nervous about something. Uh-oh, you have a bad feeling. Something's going to go wrong. What is it? You feel like you just know that something's wrong. You just don't know what it is, but you know something bad's about to happen. And that's a terrible feeling. But then someone says, you know, there is this concept in psychology called free-floating anxiety, and it's just a relic of our evolutionary past when we were in the woods and, and bears could jump out at, out at us at every time, so we're kind of tuned to feel that way, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Um, then when you feel it, you can say, oh, it's that darn free-floating anxiety again. Um, I'm not going to worry about it and it becomes self-limiting if you even have the concept of free-floating anxiety. Have you guys had that experience? You don't have to fess up, but it, it's helpful to know that there is such a thing. Um, so the same with fear. In a way, fear is the opposite of despair that way. Um, if you find out that fear is within you, then there's a sense in which you don't have to worry about it. There's another way, though, that if fear is outside of you, what you can say is, oh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Um, it's not like a real monster, it's a fake monster. It's something that wants to be taken for a real monster, but isn't. But at any rate, as soon as you decide to write an ode to fear, which is an amazing idea to write an ode to fear, as soon as you decide to write an ode to fear, you have to start deciding what it is that you're writing an ode to. So he addresses it. Thou, to whom the world unknown with all its shadowy shapes is shown, so if fear were outside of him, how would those two lines go? You don't have to rhyme. But what, how would those lines be different? If fear is trying to frighten him, what would fear say or do?
Just paraphrase. This really is an easy question. You think I'm thinking something devious, but I'm not. If in this ode to fear, fear were a kind of allegorical creature outside of Collins, um, stalking him, how would you have to change those first two lines to make that clear? Just two lines. Yeah, George. Thou who threatens me with uh, fate dreary or something. Yeah. Oh, thou who threatens me with the shadowy shapes of the world unknown, or something like that. Um, or thou who exaggeratest the shadowy shapes of the world unknown. That is, if fear were simply a monster stalking you, a thing, okay, so the general idea of allegory, we haven't really talked much about allegory in this class, but, um, but, you, if you have the most basic conception of allegory, you're fine. Despair, if you meet with despair, that means that you feel despair. If you meet with fear, that means that you feel fear. If you meet with love, that means that you feel love. Um, George Herbert has a poem which begins, Love bade me welcome. And that means that he was brought to a place where he could feel love. Love welcomed him in. If you meet these personified abstractions, which is the simplest definition of allegory. Um, they make you feel or try to make you feel whatever emotion it is that they personify, right? Um, so the first question you have to ask if you ever decide that you're going to become make a living as an allegorical poet, if any of you plans that as a career path, probably make as much money as anything else in the current economy. Um, the first thing you have to decide is do you want your allegorical person, fear or hope or love or whatever, do you want your allegorical person to experience the emotion that they personify? That's a really important question about allegory. In some cases, it's obvious that love should be loving. That is, that if you meet love, love should love everything or as much as it possibly can. If you meet hope, hope should be hopeful. Um, if you meet um, trust, trust should be very trusting. But if you meet despair, the question is, should despair be despairing? In other words, you go and meet despair, again, as in Spencer, and if you decide that despair should be despairing in the same way that hope should be hopeful, then what would happen is you'd go to the cave of despair, which is what happens in Spencer, and you would say, okay, despair, here I am, and I'm going to try to resist you. And despair would look up to you and say, oh, God, it's not even worth it to try and get you to despair. Um, despair would despair of trying to do anything to you. And then you'd say, come on, despair, I call you out, man up. And despair says, no, I can never man up. Um, it just will never happen. Oh, I don't know what to do and then despair would kill itself, and all would be fine. Um, but obviously that's not going to be an interesting allegorical poem. So, um, Interesting, yes. <laughs> okay, maybe. Interesting. It would have the interest of novelty, but it wouldn't last long. Um, it would be the James Thompson of our day. Um, 
So when you al when you personify an emotion, um, in some of them it's very easy to say no problem that the personified being should have the emotion. In others, it's much more difficult to do it. It's it's um, and so the question about fear then is should fear be fearful or not? Or fearsome. Yeah, fearsome um, is is a way to solve that. If fear is fearsome, well, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still then not feeling the emotion that it's causing. So wait, yeah, maybe that's the way to ask it. Should fear be fearful or fearsome? If it's fearsome, then it's not an example of itself, even though it's an even though it is intrinsically what it produces. It doesn't. It's not intrinsically what the. Ex it doesn't have the experience it evokes. But if it is, then it can invoke it. Right, and if fear, you know, okay, fear, I call you out. Oh no, I don't want to fight against you. Um, then again, it's going to be really hard. I'm frightened of you. You are two feet tall, and I am just little fear. Um, so yeah, fearsome versus fearful. Um, so in some sense, most people will make fear fearsome. If you do an allegory of fear, most people will make it fearsome and not fearful. But not Collins. So that's the first thing to notice. Thou to whom the world unknown with all its shadowy shapes is shown, who ceased appalled the unreal scene while fancy lifts the veil between. Ah, fear, ah, frantic fear, I see, I see thee near. So he sees fear, and fear is fearful and frantic. And um, now he does kind of solve the problem in a way that actually hides a trick, which is the important part of the poem. Um, so essentially he says, um, psychologically something really powerful is going on here, which is he says, I feel, when he says, I see thee near, ah fear, ah frantic fear, I see, I see thee near, what he's saying is, I can feel in myself that I am on the verge of an anxiety attack. Fear I know what it's like, and I know what it's like when fear, what it's like to feel appalled, um, the shapes of the unknown world and the unreal scene. Um, I can see that that feeling is very close to me. It's almost merging with me. So it's outside. It's not merged with me yet, but I can feel it coming close as though it is going to merge with me, as though the fearfulness of fear is going to be something that I become as well. I'm going to become fearful like that. I know thy hurried step, thy haggard eye. Like thee I start, like thee disordered fly. So um, there you are coming close, and as you come close, I become fearful. I recognize you because I'm like you because I am becoming fearful. Like thee, I start. Like thee, disordered, fly. For lo, what monsters in thy train appear? So who follows upon you? Who's chasing you? Who do I recognize as chasing you? As I become more and more myself, a kind of merging with your personification. So what's in your train? Danger whose limbs of giant mold, what mortal eye can fixed behold? So danger is an easy allegory, right? Um, danger is dangerous. That's not a problem. 
You don't have to say, but how can danger be dangerous? Shouldn't danger be safe? Eh, you can push it if you really want to, but there's no reason to do it. If danger is present, um, you don't say, oh, well, danger, that's dangerous danger to itself. I don't have to worry about it. Um, danger whose limbs of giant mold, what more lie can fixed behold, whose stalks his round and hideous form howling amidst the midnight storm or throws him on the ridgy steep of some loose hanging rock to sleep. That is, so danger does sleep in a dangerous um, way, but survives, and we continue to be frightened. And with him thousand phantoms joined who prompt to deeds accursed the mind, and those, the fiends who near allied o'er nature's wounds and wrecks preside, whilst vengeance in the lurid air lifts her red arm exposed and bare, on whom the ravening brood of fate who lap the blood of sorrow wait. Who fear this ghastly train can see and look not madly wild like thee? So I see you coming, and I see what is chasing you, danger and then vengeance. And again, take this seriously psychologically. What he's saying is, yeah, it's not actually the free-floating anxiety so much, because to be a human being is to feel that people have a right to revenge themselves on the wrong you've done them. And so there's vengeance following, danger and vengeance following upon fear, and um, the brood of fate are waiting for vengeance to take its revenge. Again, should vengeance be vengeful? Of course. No problem with that allegory. It's fear that's the tricky one. Then we get the epode, in, which is the whole chorus singing, in earliest Greece to thee, with partial choice, the grief-filled muse addressed her infant voice. So the earliest Greek poetry addressed their voices to fear, or fear gave, um, was the subject of the earliest Greek poetry. The maids and matrons on her awful voice, silent and pale, in wide amazement hung. Yet he, the bard who first invoked thy name, disdained in marathon its power to feel. So what he's referring to here is um, a choral ode by Aeschylus, where Aeschylus, when he did this choral ode, Aeschylus was the um, greatest of the Greek tragedians. And when he did this choral ode, he got a tremendous chorus together, no chorus that size had ever been seen before in Greece. And they wore these giant costumes, and the audience started shrieking with fear. It's like those accounts of the first movies with the train heading right to the audience and the audience running out because uh, they thought they were going to be run over. This was, the, this was an ode to fear that Aeschylus wrote. Um, and yet he had been very courageous as a soldier in the Battle of Marathon. He wrote about fear, and yet in his own life showed very great courage. So um, this is what Collins is saying now, that um, here the greatest ancient poets who wrote about fear wrote about it even though they themselves were courageous. For not alone he nursed the poet's flame, that is, wrote this ode to fear, but reached from virtue's hand the patriot's steel. Um, that is, he fought, he took the sword and fought for Greece. And then another writer who evoked fear 
but who is he whom later garlands grace, who left a while or hybla's dews to rove with trembling eyes thy dreary steps to trace where thou and fury shared the baleful grove? So what later poet was it who wrote about fear, who decided to write about you when he could have written about other things? The answer is Sophocles, as the next stanza tells us. Wrapped in, the cl in thy cloudy veil, the veil of fear, wrapped in thy cloudy veil, the incestuous queen sighed the sad call her son and husband heard when once alone it broke the silent scene and he, the wretch of Thebes, no more appeared. So this is the death of Jocasta in Oedipus Rex. Um, and that's the highest moment of fear. Um, and that's what Sophocles wanted to write about. Um, Aristotle famously says there's some stories that just to hear their plot fill you with terror. Um, tragedy, Aristotle says, is about um, the, the evocation of pity and terror and then their purgation. Um, so terror is, for Aristotle, um, Oedipus Rex is the great drama of terror. And Aristotle says, you can see how scary it is that all you have to do is tell someone the plot in one sentence and they'll be freaked out if they've never heard it before. Um, it's that scary. Um, so that's what Collins is thinking of here, the sheer terror of Oedipus Rex. And the fact now that Aeschylus and Sophocles have both decided as poets that they want to take fear as a topic. And that's what, as he thinks about fear, Collins, who is always thinking about poetry, starts thinking about the poets who have taken fear as their subject. Even though they didn't have to, he says, they did. Aeschylus didn't have to because he was a courageous warrior. Sophocles didn't have to because he was writing plays about other more pleasant things, but he decided to do it. So fear turns out to be something that poets like as topics. And then he goes on, O fear, I know thee by my throbbing heart, thy withering power inspired each mournful line. Though gentle pity claim her mingled part, yet all the thunders of the scene are thine. So again, that's the Aristotelian reference. Do people know about pity and terror in Aristotle? So, I mean, I just quoted it for you, but Aristotle defines tragedy as the imitation of an action which um, produces, awakens feelings in the audience of pity and terror, or pity or terror, um, and then leads to the purgation of those feelings. So that you feel pity and terror when you see a tragedy, and then at the end of a tragedy you feel calm of mind, all passion spent. So what Collins is referring to here is that the two things tragedy does is fills an audience with pity or terror. Um, and just think about it. That is what a tragedy does. You see King Lear and you think, oh, poor Lear. Um, and you don't think, oh, no, I'm frightened for what will happen to me. But you think, oh, poor Lear. You see um, the Oresteia or you see ha Macbeth and you think, oh, this is terrifying. You don't think, oh, poor Macbeth. You think, oh, scary life when you see Macbeth. Um, 
And remember, Macbeth comes in in the ode on the popular superstitions of Scotland, of the Highlands. Um, he says, look, Shakespeare knew how scary and how, what a, therefore, what a great subject for poetry this would be. So um, here, what he's saying is, though gentle pity, according to Aristotle, whom I agree with, claim her mingled part, yet all the thunders of the scene are thine. What really matters in tragedy is fear. Um, and, oh, we're out of time. Let's just do the antistrophe. Thou, who such weary lengths has passed, where wilt thou rest, mad nymph, at last? Say, wilt thou shroud in a haunted cell where gloomy rape and murder dwell? Or in some hollowed seat against which the big waves beat, here drowning seamen's cries and tempest brought dark power with shuddering meek submitted thought be mine to read the visions old which thy awakening bards have told. So now he's saying, I want to read about fear and about scary scenes. And lest thou meet my blasted view, hold and, and lest thou meet my blasted view, hold each strange tale devoutly true. Ne'er be I found by thee or awed in that thrice hallowed eve abroad when ghosts as cottage maids believe their pebble beds permitted leave. And goblins haunt from fire or fen or, or minor flood the walks of men. O thou, whose spirit most possessed the sacred seat of Shakespeare's breast, so Aeschylus, Sophocles, even Shakespeare, by all that from thy prophet broke, everything that Shakespeare said, in thy divine emotions spoke. Hither again thy fury deal. Teach me but once like him to feel his cypress wreath, my mead, decree and I, O fear, will dwell with thee. So he says, if fear awakens me to the ima to imagination, then I want it. If fear calls the greatest imaginative productions of Aeschylus and Sophocles and Shakespeare, then I actually want fear because fear becomes a means to think poetically. So it's not, oh no, fear, I wish I didn't feel it, but it's he's embracing fear. That last line is an echo of um, Milton's La Legro Nel Penseroso, which is a debate between the happy and the, the thoughtful man. La Legro says, I love being happy all the time, and hence vain melancholy. And Il Penseroso says, no, melancholy has charms that, uh, that ebullience can't give you. Both their poems end with, with each person, L'Allegro, the happy man, and Il Penseroso, the, the pensive man, say, saying, if you can give me these charms, then I will live with you. And Collins is doing something amazing by saying, not happiness or pensiveness, but fear. I embrace it. I want fear. Because fear is, allows you to think really deeply poetically. Not think about raping, the rape of the lock and not think about um, you know, whether loads of shit almost choke the way, but really think deeply about human psychology when you think about fear. And if you can get me to thinking about that, you can get me to writing really great poetry, and so that's what I want. Um, that's the beginning of a romanticist, a romantic way of thinking about poetry and about what it is in the human mind that poetry explores. Um, all right, uh, Gray and Young for Friday.